This is an ABC podcast. This is Sporty, Thoughtful Sport with Amanda Smith. So you know about the loneliness of the long distance runner, yeah? What about if you could go for a regular run and it was very social? And doesn't matter if you're fast or slow, young or old. We have runners who are very fast, runners who are not so fast but quite serious, slower runners, walkers, yeah, pram pushers, dog walkers. That's part of the magic, I think. Well done, Jackie. 79. Well done. 80. Does the child in the pram count as 81? No, no, I think you actually have to do it on your own two feet to get counted. So it's you and the dog. It is me and the dog. This is Angus. He's my training partner. And uh, I think he's been stuck into the puppy snacks a bit too much lately. Guys, 165, 166. This is Parkrun. It's organised by volunteers, it's free to do, and it's a Saturday morning thing that people are getting into around the world. We'll check out why later here on Sporty. How do you learn how to run a sports league or competition, to be a senior manager or on the board? Nicole Livingston is a former Australian Olympic swimming champion. These days, she's a director on the board of Swimming Australia and she's the head of women's football for the AFL. The Women's Australian Football League has been one of the really big successes in sport in Australia over the last couple of years. And the third season of the AFLW kicks off this weekend. One of the big management challenges for Nicole is to keep the interest and enthusiasm going after the initial excitement of being a new competition. And what we do know about AFLW in the first couple of years is around 30% of our audience were not AFL followers, were not fans of footy, but they were sensing that this was a female movement that they wanted to be part of. Uh, So we also want to make sure that we can attract those um, rusted on fans that follow their footy colours. There'll be some that we don't get that just don't believe that women should be playing football. I'm not going to spend too much time worrying about trying to capture those people, but I think there probably is um, a, a raft of people that are still making their mind up on AFLW. So we want to make sure that we get them to at least have a look and consider it. I'm interested in your transition, Nicole, from sportsperson competitor into administration, and that was sort of via, I suppose, working in sports media as well. How did you become, why did you want to be a sports manager? Yeah, so I've been retired now longer than I ever swam. I've been retired 22 years now, so I (laughs) swam for 16 years. Uh, I knew that when I was competing for Australia that I needed to have this parallel career going because it wasn't going to see me through to be able to pay my bills swimming. Uh, So as I was still swimming, I started broadcasting and working in corporate public affairs. Um, I worked for one of the big sports management companies, managing athletes and also managing speakers bureau, and then moved into much more of the governance side of things. So um, company directors course, uh, getting onto some boards and then the job prior to this AFL job, I was actually managing one of Australia's largest swimming clubs. So grassroots right through to Masters and the Olympics in between and Paralympics. So it was a very considered uh, step-by-step progression into this career. Yeah. And I think it's important to push yourself as well. I think as a woman with children, it's also important to have a backup plan. So if plan A doesn't quite get you to where you need to be or be able to support you in the way that you need to be supported, then to have the 
plan and be running at the same time. Well, now, obviously, your sport, swimming, mostly an individual sport and Olympic sport, very different to footy. But do you think there are things that you bring to the job of running the AFLW that come from your own background as a top-level competitor, albeit in a very different sport? Yeah, it is very different, um, although the I guess the philosophy behind it is no different. It's individuals wanting to be the best that they can. And in fact, one of the successes of the Australian swimming team is that whilst it's an individual sport, we do operate as a team. Um, the other thing that I think I bring to the table, I know I bring to the table, is that I spent 16 years being a fully heart, mind and soul female athlete that wasn't compensated to a point where I was actually able to be full-time time. So, you know, I understand the struggles and, and the difficulties that the players are encountering right now as we build this league to something that's sustainable, that they can eventually get to a point in time. And I can't tell you when that time is. Uh, it took the guys a really long time to get to that professional point where they could be full-time athletes. However, having said that, I mean, there are a raft of, of issues that present from being full-time athletes, whether you're a footballer or you're a swimmer. Uh, so it's really also important that as we move towards an eventual time where females can choose to be full-time athletes in football, that they're also considering the vocational side and the educational side because a sporting career is cruel. It's unkind. There are some highs, but there's pr plenty of lows. And it's short. And it's short, yeah. And you know all these things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as, as women's sport is expanding, are there now more opportunities open up for women to take on these sorts of leadership roles, uh, you know, in executive positions, also on boards, and not only in women's sport, but across the sports board? It is a changing scape that's becoming more normalised, just like seeing little girls in ponytails bouncing footies on the way to, to football training. You know, that's not a sight that you stop and go, wow, that's unusual. It's now something that we're used to seeing. So um, we assembled our leadership team for AFLW season number three and I just picked the most outstanding people across the business and we um, got together probably about three months ago for our first leadership meeting and they're all female. So, you know, nine outstanding women across the business that are leading AFLW and AFL. Well, running any kind of sports league or competition these days is a big job. There are all sorts of demands, commercial but also ethical. What would you say are the most tricky, difficult ethical things to juggle mm. with running the AFLW. The push for equality and equity is something that is challenging for football. It's a really tough industry. AFL is such a successful sport and you have 800 male athletes that are full-time, that are getting endorsements, a league that is very well supported commercially. But then you look at all of the women's sports and it's actually very difficult to prove your case to corporate Australia to support and invest in um, when we are being judged on male sport. But the other piece that I, I think we need to prove is that we're actually changing society. So there, there is a worth in that for organisations to get involved in women's sport and doing the right thing by women, I think is something that corporate Australia should probably take note of. Well, finally, Nicole, what, what's, what's your advice to anyone, uh, former 
sports people like you or others thinking of a career in sports management? Mm. What would you recommend? Um, you know, I talk about networking a lot and uh, a lot of women say, oh, don't tell me to network again. But it is important for you to get yourself out there and to, to volunteer as well. Um, we have a generation that sort of don't want to do the time so much at the bottom level. They always want to keep rising up to the top. It's important just to, you know, roll your sleeves up and, and volunteer. That will get you in front of people. So... Yeah, stick your hand up. Anyone wants to help with AFLW, I'm happy for them to come and help. There you go. There's an offer. (laughs) Nicole Livingston is the head of women's football for the AFL. The 2019 season of the AFLW kicks off this weekend. And this is Sporty with Amanda Smith. Now, in making that transition from swimmer to sports administrator, Nicole Livingston learned how to do it on the job, working her way up. But do you know that there are actually almost 40 bachelor degrees in sports management that you can do at universities around the country? So what do you learn? What do you need to learn? You only have to look at the sackings and resignations from the board and management of Cricket Australia late last year that were precipitated by the ball tampering incident and then the Longstaff Ethical Review of Cricket to realise the competing demands of the job these days and the complexities of it with sport often seen now as a vehicle for social change. David Shilbury became Australia's first Professor of Sports Management some 30 years ago. He's at Deakin University. In that time, David, what changes have you seen in the demands for the way sport needs to be managed? Much has changed in that time. I sometimes think have a, a bit of sympathy for some of the high-profile CEOs of the high-profile sports. They've got a big burden to carry in terms of the expectations of sport solving some of these quite complex social issues. But to their credit, over the years, they have started to tackle some of these and in many ways done a reasonable job. Um, but their core business is about sport and people enjoying sport. How would you say sports management is different to general business management. So say, you know, I could go to Harvard Business School and come out of that with an MBA or I could do one of your sports management courses. What what would I learn that is particular that I need to yep. know to run yep. a sports team or league or organisation? Yep. Your example is a really good one. Why not just do an MBA, for example? Um, the nature of our product, it's very emotional. And one of the first things that we teach our students and ultimately graduates is to learn to recognise when they're becoming a sports fan as opposed to professional, objective, independent decision maker with responsibilities for staff and other people's careers. And in our football codes in particular, which is a weekly win-loss scenario, this can be a big trap. So we spend a lot of time teaching our students to understand the need to be a rational manager, but also understand that the strength of our business is also our weakness. That irrationality and passion that the sports fans exhibit is what drives sport. What we've seen um, with governance in sport is really examples of how a failure in governance can bring a whole sport into disrepute. Australian cricket is, again, the example, I suppose. To what extent are senior administrators responsible for the culture of their sport? Well, it starts a little bit higher than that. If you're, if you're referring to senior administrators as directors of the organisation... Well, I guess I'm, I'm using that term for the globally. whole, the whole yep. bundle, CEOs, yep. chairs, yep. board directors, yeah. So one of the, one of the um, 
many responsibilities of directors collectively as a board is to set a cultural tone for the organisation in the same way that they would set a risk appetite for the organisation and expect them, their management team to work within those frameworks. And that's one of the difficult things to grasp uh, in any sport is how do you manage culture? How do you change culture? Um, well, clearly it starts at the top. Um, the Essendon Football Club was probably an example of that. So you're referring to a few years ago yep. with the culture of yep. performance-enhancing drug Correct. use in the yep. club. Yep. Mm -hmm. And also all of the attitudes and um, values around was it okay to go off-site and to do this or in the case of cricket, you know, ball tampering, who's responsible, res ultimately responsible for this? And at the end of the day, accountability finishes with the board but having said that, how do you control what three players choose to do in a nation mm. halfway around the world on the spur of a moment in professional sport in which we see in the heat of the, the battle in sport the strangest things happen by people that you wouldn't expect to do those sorts of things? Exactly. So, so how it, do you... There's a lot of reference to uh, player charters and staff charters and all of these sorts of things that are meant to try and bring people on to this, onto the same page. Players often don't internalise or understand exactly what's in them, so charters on their own are not, not enough, but there needs to be an education process um, in which players get involved in these sorts of things, and they don't really like that too often, to be honest. But from a director's point of view, you need to be able to say we've made our best efforts or good faith to try and get our players to understand the challenges that they could confront. And you've only got to think of match-fixing and these other um, traps that players can come across across the world in terms of someone offering money for information, some players might not understand the implications of that when they're young and naive. Well, for a sports manager, is there always going to be a kind of tension, I suppose, between, you know, the business of the enterprise and the fundamentals of sport, you know, which is at its heart a contest between equals, according to a set of rules and spirit of play, where, where you don't always win. Yep. Being able to balance those often competing, yep. literally, <laughs> interests between, you know, management and the values of sport. Yep. No, I think it's a really good question. If we go back to the Longstaff report with Cricket Australia, that was a really interesting read and a really nice report. But what the report dealt with in a lot of ways was what I deemed to be the normal tensions in sport business. That is, how much do you commercialise sport versus the good of the game and the intrinsic elements of participation and how much we fund at that level. In my view, the report confused that with an ethical issue as if somehow being commercial in sport was ethically wrong. That's a it's a normal sport business tension. It's a question of strategy and reputation will live or die on the decisions you make. So if you get too commercial and too detached from the lifeblood of the game, then your sport will suffer. Right. But then if you don't follow, you know, a whole lot of those uh, commercial opportunities, your sport's going to suffer too. And that's exactly the, the tension. Uh, AFL and cricket are classics. Their job is to maximise their sources of revenue. One of the reasons they do that, putting aside their need to pay players a certain amount, is to turn it back into the development of the game so people can play right across the country and enjoy it, both men and women. And Professor David Shilbury is the Foundation Chair in Sports Management at Deakin University, one of the dozens of universities around the country where you can learn how to be a sports administrator. Well, let's get outdoors now here on Sporty and head to a local park. It's Saturday morning. 
could be at any one of some 350 locations around Australia or indeed over 1,600 places around the world. OK, on your marks, set. This is Park Run. Go! And it's the world's largest mass participation, non-competitive sports event. We have runners who are very fast, runners who are not so fast but quite serious, uh, slower runners, walkers, yeah, pram pushers, dog walkers. That's part of the magic, I think. Parkrun started in the UK in 2004 in a, in a park on the outside of London, southwest London, and it was started by a guy called Paul Sinton Hewitt. And this is the guy who brought it to Australia, starting on the Gold Coast in 2011, Tim Oberg. But back to the beginning in the UK. Paul was injured at the time. He, he had a pretty serious running background, sort of club running and so on, but he did his... Amateur, though, not professional. Amateur, exactly, mm -hmm. yeah. But he had this idea that he would start up a five-kilometre time trial. It would be every Saturday morning. It would be at 9am and they would all go for coffee. That was the most important part. The was coffee. That, but, yeah, that's how it all started. So. so so if he was injured, how come he was still running? No, he wasn't running. He was the first volunteer. So Paul set it up. So we had 13 runners and five volunteers on the very first day. And it was pretty serious because these are all runners from his running club. But uh, as we now know, it's evolved into a much more community-focused event. So that is no, essentially run anyway. by yeah. volunteers. So that's pretty easy. Yeah. So grab a volunteer vest. Okay. There's various sizes yep. in there. Sarah, yep. you're a first-time volunteer, are you? What's brought I you in? Because um, I feel guilty every time I run the course and I see <laughs> volunteers and I haven't done it yet. And what was your what was your background in sport or fitness or running before you started parkrun? I was not a runner at all. Avoided running at all costs as I grew up. So I basically taught myself to run by coming to parkrun because there was no no competition, no pressure. So I would start run a kilometre, walk a couple of kilometres and finish. And so I've just gradually worked up every week for myself to be able to run the 5K. Ooh. Now, just in terms of safety, the course is clear, but there is a bit of debris on the track, particularly sort of in the section just down here past the start line. So just be a little bit careful of that and on the bridges and things, of course. And particularly at the 1K corner, it's a sharp turn, often cyclists and things. We do share the park with others. So keep left and, um, and give way. Have fun! Uh, um, my name's John Booth. I've been running now probably four years. And as I understand it, not so long ago you ran the New York Marathon. Yes, I did. Yeah, I ran it in November 2018. And uh, yeah, I, got, I can't believe I've gone from 5K to um, 42K in, in a reasonably short stretch of time. Yeah, running just becomes addictive. And I think running with people, which is what park run is, helps keep you motivated and keeps it interesting, actually. How much attention do you pay to your times? Well, at the beginning, I think um, times were important. I wanted to break the 25-minute barrier, which I suppose for, you know, average recreational runners is a good goal to get. But then after that, you sort of go along and sometimes, you know, a, a chat's more important and you run along and have a big chat about running and the chat at the end, that's the big thing now, I think. Hi. Over the years of parkrun in Australia, the average finishing time, I think, has got slower and slower <laughs> each year. Now, in most sports, that would be regarded as, as a dismal failure. Do you see it that way? No, absolutely not. What 
What that means is your parkrun is changing from something where you're getting fast, competitive runners turning up every week to people who are comfortable turning up and having a walk. And that's what we want to see because the, the more people who come along and walk parkrun in 50 minutes, 55 minutes, they're the people who in 12 months' time, they'll be jogging it in 45 and the year after that, they'll probably be doing half marathons. But yeah, as you say, the, the finishing time, average finishing time is getting slower and for, for, for us, we see that as a sign of success. All right, so this started in uh, the UK and in fact, lots and lots of sports were originally developed in the UK and then spread around the globe. So, you know, cricket, soccer, rugby, for example. Mm -hmm. That was all quite a while ago, though. Mm -hmm. uh, but in that tradition, parkrun has spread around the world. I think you now claim it's the largest mass participation sporting event on the planet? Absolutely, yeah. That, that, I mean, if you just look at the, the numbers going through week in, week out, so, you know, 260,000 people all over the world every weekend, so multiply that by 52, it's a huge number. So I think it's quite quite safe to say parkrun's the largest mass participation event in the world. Is it, you say it's it's timed, is it competitive between participants? From an organisational perspective, we don't promote the competitive side of it. Everything we do is about participation. Okay, so now you're at the back of the field. Tell me your name and what you're doing. My name is Ashley and me and my mum today, we are tail walker for Parkrun. Hello, Ashley's mum. What's your name? <laughs> Hello, Julie. Hi, Julie. Hi. So what's a tail walker? Uh, so we pretty much just stay at the back of the pack to make sure that everyone gets through and also to pick up the signs along the way. So that means that you come last, no one else comes last? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> So here we are at the finish line, yeah, <laughs> waiting for them right. to come in. Yeah, just the first one coming in now. Well done. Okay, you're Steve and you're the race director uh, today? Yes, yes, that's right. Well done. I was introduced to parkrun by my wife who was looking for an activity that we could do together and have a bit of fun and I had never been a runner up till then so that was all part of the challenge for me. So what's, what's becoming a runner meant for you? Well, physical health, but probably the two most important things is mental health and being part of a community. So you think it's made a difference to your mental health as well as physical health? Oh, huge difference. It gives you a purpose and things to you know, look forward to during the week and the opportunity to get outside in the fresh air and just switch off from all of those pressures of normal life. This is all fantastic, but it, there's, there's an element of it that sounds a little bit cultish. Uh, yeah, it probably is. <laughs> Look, I think the thing about parkrun is you make it what you want to make it. For some people, it's a physical activity where there's no great commitment that you need to make. You don't need to um, commit other than just showing up on the day or not showing up on a day. You want to run, you want to walk. But for many, many people, it's not about the run, it's about the community. And so they would happily just come along and, and have a chat and catch up with friends, but they have to do the um, get around the 5Ks as part of that. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's what you make of it. He's been out of training in the fat So it's you and the dog. It is me and the dog. This is Angus. He's my training partner. And uh, 
I think he's been stuck into the puppy snacks a bit too much lately. <laughs> Still, you came in in very good time. I'm surprised. I, uh, I haven't been training very much, and um, it's good fun to come out here on a Saturday morning, especially on a day like today. What's your name? It's Tim Chad. Tim, good to talk to you. Well done. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> he doesn't want to get up. No, he's had enough. <laughs> You're Sally, and you're another one of the volunteers. Yes, I am. And how did you get involved in all this? I started parkrun in 2014. I registered, but it took me a few months to find up the courage to come along. And I've now done nearly 200 parkruns. And why did it? Why did it take some courage? Uh, I was a keen runner, had been for a few years, but enjoyed running on my own. I didn't think I liked the idea of running with a group of people, but. The first week I came along, that changed everything. I would never imagine getting up on a Saturday morning and not coming to Parkrun. Really? Really. It's my son's birthday today and I'm at Parkrun this morning with his blessing, as long as I get home quickly for breakfast with him. Well done. 84. Here's a child with her, her toy bunny. You've just done it. Are you puffing? Yes. <laughs> well done. 85. I'm Emily and I'm nine years old. How long have you been doing parkrun for? Um, well done. 86. I think, well, in kinder, I would do it occasionally, but I really started in prep, which was in 2015. Wow, so you've done lots. Yes. And what do you like about it? I like because you get to see all the nature in the morning. Like, we see a lot of kangaroos, and you also get to meet people. Do you like running? Yes. <laughs> what do you like about running? I like running because it sort of makes me stronger. 87. When we got to the big hill, I was really puffed, so I had to walk. <sighs> well, you did well. Good on you. Thank you. Nice one, finish. So now you're Lynn and you've just finished the 5k run? Yes, just finished, just catching my breath. <laughs> so what brought you to do this? Well, I've always been interested in exercise and sport, but I've been sick for 20 years with chronic fatigue and so I've not really had that many opportunities. Um, but yes, I've just been coming each week and I just feel so fantastic at the end, however you run or jog or walk, that I just keep coming back and it's really um, put a new element into my life. How does it go having chronic fatigue and being able to run, jog, walk 5Ks? Yes, well that's that's the question <laughs> that I sort of wonder about because generally with chronic fatigue the thing is to not exercise because it overexerts you and stuff like that but I found on my journey or whatever you want to call it um, because I was always a sporty person it sport always energized me so I think even though yes people do ask that question I think it's sort of like for me it's easy-ish to run or jog even though it's not always that easy but relatively and I can feel a sense of achievement because I feel a bit like I was when I was young and I used to run a bit I'm like oh I can do this I'm going well when you have chronic fatigue you don't feel like you're going well at things everything's pretty not going well so to have something where you feel like you're improving and it's you know helping your body and your mind yeah I think that's how it works for me yeah are you pretty wrecked afterwards though yes <laughs> That's correct. So usually my Saturday is we often go and have a coffee and then I'll go home and potter about a little bit, have a rest and not do much and that's sort of the end of Saturday.
done, guys. Good work, Rob. 165, 166. John, you're a legend! <laughs> well done, Peter. <laughs> Setting the world on fire. 167. Well done. And the tail walker and her mum. Yay! 169. And we're done. Time for coffee. And if you want to find the closest park run to you and give it a go, or even set one up in your neck of the woods, there's a link on the Sporty website to Park Run Australia. It has all the info for you. Next time on Sporty, the history of swimming that we started last week continues. Couldn't squeeze it into this program, but the deep dive into swimming's history will resume next time. I'm Amanda Smith. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.